morning, everybody. Good morning, Hope family. Uh, my name is Brandon, and I am one of the pastors here at Hope. And I'm going to open up my uh, sermon this morning in a way that I'm sure is not at all unusual, super normal way to open a sermon, with confession. Yeah, the sign, <laughs> ooh, the sign outside, says, outside says no perfect people allowed, so I'm just kind of living out of that reality, right? So here's my confession. I am often deeply anxious about the state of the world today. Anyone else, or is it just me? Okay, everybody. <laughs> it's, it's not a huge confession, right? But seriously, I'm like deeply, deeply anxious about it, oftentimes. In, in my early 30s, in fact, I decided that being well-informed about the world is generally a good thing, and I still believe that today, but my um, way that I was going to start to become more well-informed was to start listening to the news every day. Right? And so my solution was to just every single day start listening to the news, and it was great for my goal of being well-informed, but it was terrible for my anxiety. Right? I learned about dictators and global poverty. I learned about the loneliness epidemic and gun violence. I learned about border crises and budget crises. Everywhere I looked, it seemed like there was injustice, there was oppression and domination. And because, number one, I feel things very deeply. I'm just a very emotional person. And because, two... I couldn't really do anything about the stuff that I was learning about. The main result of my becoming more informed was to become more anxious. Can anyone else relate to this? It can be overwhelming how many things that we look at around our world and we just say, that is not the way it should be. That is not right. Our world has no shortage of injustice, oppression, poverty, and yet without a clear path forward, I'm just stuck feeling kind of icky about all of it, right? And sometimes I just end up resigning myself to believing that, well, that's just the way that it is, and it's just the way that it has to be. However, as I was studying our text in Luke for this week, I believe that God hit me with a truth about injustice, a truth about oppression, a truth about all these things, and, and the way that the world, that we look at it and just say that this is not the way it should be, right? And here's what the truth is. It doesn't have to be this way. The truth is, it doesn't have to be this way. Today we're going to talk about seeing about vision, about imagination, because I believe that there's a relationship between how we see what we're able to imagine and how we live. You can think of it as a progression, right? How we see determines what we're able to imagine, which impacts greatly how we live and how we act. Said in the negative, if we can't see in new ways, then we can't imagine new possibilities. And if we can't imagine new possibilities, then we can never bring those possibilities to reality. And for me, more than once in my life, I've been maybe not literally, but figuratively blind, right? Only able to see life from one limited perspective. And because of that, I couldn't imagine that things could be any different than the way that they were right then. So here's a story that kind of illustrates that in my own life. So it was around the time that I graduated high school, I was dating this young woman, and for me, I thought everything in the relationship was going great. We had been dating for about a year and a half. We'd already had some conversations about maybe we're going to end up getting married. She had shown me pictures of wedding dresses and things like that. I was getting excited about it. I thought that it was a great relationship. But my friends saw something very different than I did. 
they saw that I was constantly anxious in the relationship. They saw that the young woman that I was dating was exhibiting some behaviors that were very unhealthy, some controlling behaviors, some manipulative behaviors and things like that. They saw that I didn't deserve that kind of relationship. And on some level, I'm sure that I knew that as well, but it's really hard to see clearly when we're in the thick of it, right? So anyways, one day, two of my best friends pulled me aside and they helped me to see the relationship the way that they saw it. They helped me to see how unhappy I was, how toxic the relationship was, and how me, right, their best friend, had drastically changed over the past two years and not for the better. That day changed how I saw the relationship. And because of that, I was able to imagine a life beyond this young woman, and actually about two weeks later, I ended the relationship. It was one of the best decisions of my whole life, and I wouldn't have done that unless my friends helped me to see differently so that I could imagine a different kind of future and then act accordingly. Does that make sense? I'm 100% confident that all of us have similar stories in our lives, maybe not around dating, right? But we all have been stuck in one way of seeing, one way of imagining until something snapped us out of it. I believe that's why we use phrases like an eye-opening experience. It can feel like we're opening our eyes for the very first time and seeing things in a completely new way. When we see in a new way, we can imagine a new future. And don't let anyone talk to you about imagination like, ooh, that's, that's just your imagination. That's just kid stuff. Right? Imaginations are powerful. I believe imaginations can change history. For example, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was about 27 years old, he was just beginning his long fight toward equity for black Americans. And in fact, at this point, he was actually just about ready to give up. God gave King a fresh vision and a fresh imagination. It's now known as his famous kitchen table experience, uh, but King was sitting at his kitchen table late one night at 2 a.m. or something like that, and God spoke these words to King. He said, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. King says that God's words to him that night are what helped him develop his deeply held ethic for non-violent resistance. And in fact, just a few weeks after his kitchen table experience, his house was bombed. And King, when his friends came to his house, armed with weapons and ready to go seek vengeance on the people that had just bombed his house, remembered back to the words that God had spoken to him. And rather than joining his friends, rather than seeking vengeance, rather than doing things the way that they're always done, he talked his friends down. God helped King see his situation differently, and he helped him imagine a new future, namely one of nonviolent resistance, which deeply influenced how King lived his life. I think we can all agree that the world is transformed because of King's renewed imagination. Now that kind of work, the work of helping people see, imagine, and act differently is exactly what Jesus is up to in Luke 6, 20 through 26, which is our passage for this morning, right? We've been in this series called Luke, Jesus for Everyone, and I believe that this morning Jesus has a new way of seeing in store for all of us. And namely, he wants to show us that it doesn't have to be this way. 
So within this series, uh, the, the, the past two weeks specifically, uh, between Dwayne and Liz's sermons, we've been exploring what's called the Sermon on the Plain, right? And so far, we've covered verses 37 through 45 of the sermon. And our passage this morning actually takes a little step back in the Sermon on the Plain. We're going to be looking at the very opening of his sermon. But it's another kind of opening as well, because the context of the Sermon on the Plain is that Jesus has just finished inviting his 12 disciples to follow him. Now, if you're new to Jesus' stuff, the 12 disciples are the people who most closely followed Jesus, right? Both literally, they physically went with him everywhere he went, but also figuratively, they were the people that most closely followed his teachings. And anytime that a leader gathers their first followers, the first thing that they will often do is establish their purpose and their vision. Why are we here, and what is this thing supposed to look like? And as Christians, right, we believe that Jesus wasn't just like any other earthly leader. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the image of an invisible God, the most complete image of what God is like if God were living on earth. And so when that Jesus is casting vision for what the kingdom of God is like, and therefore what his disciples are going to be all about, we would do well to listen closely and pay attention to those first words. So here they are. Luke 6, 20 through 26, you can follow along up on the screen or you can pull out your Bible if you have one. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and be very glad. Leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So those are Jesus' first words to his earliest followers, right? He proclaims blessings over the poor, the hungry, and the weeping, and he offers warnings for the rich, the full, and the laughing. Not exactly the words I would have chosen, right? It's kind, it's kind of weird. It's not this, like, rousing speech to get his followers going. I think most of us in the room that call ourselves leaders would look at this and wonder, like, what is Jesus doing here? So let's ask the question, what is Jesus doing? So this particular teaching from Jesus fits into a style or genre called wisdom teaching. Uh, Liz actually talked about wisdom some last week, right? I loved how she talked about it as knowledge paired with action. As right thinking followed by right living. And we know that the passage is a wisdom teaching because the format, blessed are the blank, and woe to you who, who blank. Proclaiming ble blessings and woes like that is a very common form in wisdom tradition. And so it generally goes kind of like this. If you do this, or if your life is like this, then you'll be happy, you'll be blessed, right? But if you do this, or if your life generally looks like this, you'll be unhappy, you'll be cursed, you'll be considered foolish, so that's our first hint at what Jesus is up to. He's teaching wisdom, which means he's instructing his followers not just what to think, but about how to live. But the second question is, what kind of wisdom is he teaching? 
You see, within the wisdom tradition, it's often said that there are two basic types of wisdom. There's conventional wisdom, and there's alternative wisdom. What are the two types? Conventional and alternative. alternative. There we go. If you had to make a guess, which category of wisdom do you think Jesus' teaching here falls into? Probably alternative, right? Jesus is the guy who turns things on their heads. Jesus, in fact, is inverting our normal ways of thinking and living, right? He's reprioritizing his audience's normally held values to reorient them toward what he calls the kingdom of God. But before we look at the specifics of Jesus' alternative wisdom, I want to look at conventional wisdom a little bit, and then I think it'll be really clear how Jesus is challenging the conventional wisdom of his day. So first of all, Britannica.com defines conventional wisdom as opinions or beliefs that are held or accepted by most people. I think the key phrase there is, by most people, right? This is the way that most people think, the things that most people believe. And I would even add to the definition slightly by saying, by most people in a given group or a given culture. For example, when I was a teenager, the conventional held wisdom was that eating protein will make you strong. Now, I was always kind of skinny and kind of stringy as a teenager. Uh, I still am, but I was back then, too. <laughs> I was always pr pretty uh, skinny, and so I thought, you know, if I go to a smoothie shop or if I'm going to get, like, a shake or something, I should always order it with protein, you know, because then I'll get strong. Then I'll get big. Because, again, the conventional wisdom among 14-year-old boys is that protein makes you strong. Now, obviously, we can poke holes in that, right? Um, we know that like, maybe lifting heavy objects now and then will also contribute to you becoming strong. Maybe I was just kind of too lazy for that. I don't know. Who can say? But in Jesus' day, and probably today too, there was this piece of conventional held wisdom that if you were poor, if you were hungry, if your life was generally characterized by grief, it was most likely a direct result of your sin your laziness, or your general religious laxity. In essence, if you're poor, it's because God made it so, probably because he's punishing you for something that you did or didn't do, or for something that your family or even your nation did or didn't do. Now, I don't think we've actually come a very long way from this conventional wisdom, but then can we even blame the people in Jesus' day? I mean, in some ways, they're really just reading their Bibles, like in Proverbs 10.4, we get this, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 12.24, diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Proverbs 26.15, I love this one, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish, he's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. That one's just mean. <laughs> The Proverbs are full of conventional wisdom, right? These kinds of ideas are generally held and accepted by most people. And hear me clearly, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. In most cases, is being lazy and watching Netflix all day the fast track to success and riches? No. Conventional wisdom is true most of the time. But conventional wisdom always has limitations. And to illustrate those limitations, I'm going to attempt to hear this teaching as best as we can this morning through the lens of Jesus' original audience. 
Because I think that the, convention, the, the limitations of the conventional wisdom become really clear, especially with the example about poverty and uh, hard work, right? When you consider the system of oppression, domination, and hierarchy that ruled in Jesus' day. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to see this passage through Jesus' original audience's eyes. But before we do that, I do want to address one issue that might have a lot of us kind of hung up in the passage. I'm going to call the issue the spiritual versus physical dichotomy. And here's, here's, here's what it is. I think more than one of us have had this question kind of pop up in our heads. I think that some of us automatically, when we read the passage, insert the word spiritually in front of each of the adjectives, right? So poor becomes spiritually poor. Hungry becomes spiritually hungry. You get the idea. I think especially if we grew up in the church, a lot of us do this kind of by default. But there's two issues with that. The first one is pretty basic. Luke doesn't do that, right? The word spiritually is not in the passage. Now, your mind might be thinking, okay, but what about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where Matthew says, um, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? So it's all spiritual, right? Well, the problem with that is this isn't Matthew. This is Luke, and Luke's original audience wouldn't have even had access to Matthew's gospel. Luke didn't design his gospel to need other gospels to read and check it against. It was designed to be an internally consistent gospel and understood on its own terms. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that care for the actual poor and the actual marginalized is a really big theme throughout Luke. Let's remember back to Jesus' first sermon in Luke, right? When he began his public ministry by proclaiming, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Or Luke 14, 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Or Luke 18, 22, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Now come and follow me. I don't think it makes sense in any of these examples to insert the word spiritually, right? Luke wants us to get that caring for the actual physical poor is an important part of the gospel. So I'm fine with saying that maybe Jesus could mean both spiritually and physically poor, but certainly he at least means poor in the literal sense. So let's go back to Jesus' original audience. We're going to look at the system of oppression domination that formed the main context for Jesus' audience, and it would have really, really informed how those folks heard Jesus' words about the poor, about the hungry, and about the weeping in Luke 6. So first of all, roughly 70%, 70% of Luke's gospel takes place in a region called Galilee. It's the primary region where Jesus did his teaching, his preaching, and his healing. And around that time, there was a major effort that was undertaken to commercialize the Sea of Galilee. You see, up until the time of Jesus, or roughly there so, um, the sea was a place where Galileans would fish to support their own families and their own communities. And these Galilean Jews, and by the way, just so that we're all on the same page here, Jesus, as well as most of his followers, were Jews, right? Both ethnically and religiously, they were Jews, these Galilean Jews would own their own boats, they'd own their own fishing businesses, 
And while fishermen were not like the wealthiest people around, they could easily get by. But the ruler over Galilee at that time, this guy named Herod, decided that he wanted to squeeze more taxes out of the region. And so what he did was he imposed these fishing uh, quotas and really, really high taxes, ensuring that most of the fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee went not into the local communities around Galilee, but were actually exported to other regions within the Roman Empire. And so fishermen who couldn't keep up with the quotas or couldn't afford to pay the taxes, they would lose their boats, they would lose their businesses, they would lose their homes, and in extreme cases, their whole families could be sold into slavery. The majority of fishermen who were able to keep their own boats and their own businesses ended up going from being, you know, getting by just fine to barely being able to survive. And so in Jesus' day, the majority of Galilean Jews were just barely scraping by, and it had nothing to do with how hard they worked. Are we starting to see the limitations of the conventional wisdom around hard work and poverty? Right? It works as a general principle to say that if you don't work hard, you'll end up poor, but it doesn't really take into account oppression or exploitation. Right? Like, do we think that these Galilean fishermen were just poor and lazy, and that that's why they were, or they were just lazy and that's why they're poor? Or does it maybe have something to do with the fact that the sea was commercialized and Herod's policy to overburden, overtax, and lock people into cycles of crippling debt? Probably the, the latter, right? In fact, there's this really cool artifact, I think Liz introduced it a few weeks ago, called the Jesus Boat. Is it out there? There it is. Liz introduced this to us several weeks ago, but it serves as kind of a profound image of the exploitation and the oppression that the Jews in Galilee faced. The boat was discovered in the Sea of Galilee, again, where Jesus did all of his teaching, and it, was, um, it dates back to the time of Jesus, and it's the only boat of its kind that's been discovered so far. Which is why it's truly amazing that as archaeologists began to um, restore and preserve the boat, they found that the main hole was made out of one type of wood, a kind of cedar. But besides the cedar wood, there were over 11 types of wood that were used to mend and patch and repatch and painstakingly but lovingly stretch this boat to the absolute maximum breaking point. Right? Historians and archaeologists have noted that that level of intense patching, that level of having to just um, take care of it and stretch it so far was very unusual for fishing vessels that are discovered in other parts of the world. And the only thing they can find that that points to is a people who were stretched very, very thin as a result of Herod's unjust policies around the commercialization of the sea. Does this make sense? And when I think more broadly about the systems of oppression, of domination that these Galileans suffered under, the phrase that comes up for me is kingdoms of man. It's a phrase that we've been using a lot throughout our Luke series, right? Luke is constantly contrasting the kingdom of God or God's reign on earth with the kingdoms of man. And Luke's audience suffered under a system of oppression, domination, and hierarchy that was, that was awful. It was dehumanizing. It was backbreaking. And yet, it was also really, really common. It was just kind of business as usual. 
Because that kind of stuff, oppression, domination, hierarchy, that is business as usual in the kingdoms of man. But that begs the question, what is the result of those kingdoms of man with their terrible but very common systems of oppression, domination, and hierarchy? Well, the result is that they bring riches. They bring fullness and they bring laughter. For a few. For a very small few. And they bring hunger, poverty, and weeping for the many. Right? If the first century Jews had cable news, they'd see this constant stream of stories about the latest cities that were burned to the ground by the Romans, like the city of Sepphoris that was just five miles from Jesus' hometown. They would have seen stories of Jewish rebels or terrorists, depending on who you asked, right, being executed by the hundreds. They'd see stories of hunger, of predatory loans, of enslavement of their fellow Jews, oftentimes by their fellow Jews. Not to create like a one-to-one comparison, but it's not all that different from turning on the news today. This kind of stuff is business as usual in the kingdoms of man. Kingdoms which both in Jesus' time and today can seem insurmountable, unbeatable, or just the way that things have to be. But the good news is that Jesus came to show his followers and us that it doesn't have to be this way. He wanted them to see that the kingdoms of man will not get the final say. Why? Because the kingdom of God is coming, and the kingdom of God will look not like oppression, domination, and hierarchy, but it'll look like liberation, freedom, and equity. Jesus flipped the script on the conventional wisdom about who is blessed and who isn't, about what God's kingdom is like and how it's the polar opposite of the kingdoms of man, the polar opposite of business as usual. This was the alternative wisdom that Jesus brought. And what's really cool about it, actually, is that it wasn't even new. You see, the Old Testament prophets were full of this same kind of alternative wisdom, the kind that takes the normalcy of humanity and flips it on its head, right? The kind that takes the kingdoms of man with their oppression, their domination, and all their hierarchies and reverses it. Let's look at Isaiah 58 together. Verse 6, it says, Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? Remember, Jesus mentions the prophets, right, in verses 22, 23, and 26. Why does he do that? Because the prophets stood against oppression in their day, and they were hated for it. And so Jesus' invitation in Luke 6 to his followers is to take the side of justice for the poor and the oppressed, but beware, because if you do, you'll be hated for it too, just like they were. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, he is, in essence, saying to his audience of the predominantly poor Galilean Jews, I see that you feel cursed. I know that you feel less than the laughers and the mockers and the oppressors. I know that when you look around, when you look at your life, you see that everything has been taken from you and your people, and the only way that you can imagine to live 
is to grasp what you have, take care of only yourself and your family, keep your head down and do your best to just survive, all the while being told that you aren't doing enough by the so-called religious leaders. But, Jesus says, but in God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down. In God's kingdom, it's the people like you who are blessed because the kingdom of God looks nothing like the kingdoms of men. His kingdom is built not on oppression, domination, but it's built on justice. It's not about hierarchies, but it's about equity. Jesus' reversal of the blessed helped his disciples see the world in a new way. And because they could see the world in a new way, they could imagine a different way of being human, and therefore, they could act in new and creative ways. Because once you can see that it doesn't have to be this way, you're free to act accordingly. And act, Jesus' disciples did. There's this other book called the Book of Acts. Have we heard of the Book of Acts? It's kind of a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, actually. It's also written by Luke, but it describes the acts of the disciples. And in Acts 2, we get this beautiful image of how Jesus' disciples carried this new vision from Luke 6 directly into the early community of Jesus followers. So this is Acts 2, 44 through 47, and I'm going to read from the message translation. All the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. Day by day, they spent time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. There's a direct line between the sermon on the plain in Luke 6 and this passage in, Luke, in Acts 2. I want you to notice some of the phrases in Acts, right? Each person's need was met. That doesn't sound like poverty. What did they do together? They broke bread and they ate food. That doesn't sound like hunger. They had glad and generous hearts. That doesn't sound like weeping. Jesus' words in Luke helped his followers to see beyond their own reality of oppression. And it gave them imagination for what could be, namely a society in which no one was poor, no one was hungry, and no one had cause to weep. In fact, did you know that many theologians and historians are now fairly confident that one of the primary reasons that so many Romans and so many Greeks ended up converting to the Christian movement Right, which literally meant putting yourself in danger of being socially rejected or even executed by Rome. The reason that so many Greeks and Romans were willing to convert from their system of beliefs into Christianity was because that community was one where they could have their practical needs met and where they were able to care for the needs of others. It was the only place in Roman society where a slave and a free person could be equals. It was the only place in Roman society where men and women could be equals. Jesus did not give his disciples this new vision to help them better cope with their poverty, to feel better about it, or to wait around for an afterlife in which their poverty would just melt away. Jesus gave them this vision because in the kingdom of God, he believed 
There are no poor, there are no hungry, and there is no weeping. And therefore, when we partner with God to make that kingdom a reality here on earth, it looks like needs being met, bread being broken, and hearts that are glad and generous. New vision leads to new imagination, leads to new ways of living and acting. It doesn't have to be this way. But then what gets in the way of that kind of vision? I think that the main thing that gets in the way of our new way of seeing and our new way of living, right, is the old way. A few weeks ago, Doug called it old wineskins, right? We all believe things and we all live in ways that we just kind of take for granted. Like, well, it's always been this way and so it's always going to be this way and so I might as well just kind of go with the flow. And yet in God's kingdom, it absolutely should not, cannot be that way. So a question that we can think about, right, is what conventional wisdoms do we believe, unlike my protein makes you strong example, right, what conventional wisdoms do we hold that are actually upholding the normal systems of oppression, domination, and hierarchy in our world today? And then the second thing that I think gets in the way, and I'm going to rock a few boats in this one, but here it goes. The other thing that gets in the way is the hell in a handbasket belief. What I mean by that, so the belief goes, well, if the Bible says that the world is going to hell anyways, that everything's just going to burn, then the only thing I really need to think about and focus on is preparing myself and people around me for an afterlife in heaven. Right? Now, I don't have time to name all the reasons that that kind of thinking is problematic, but I'll name the most obvious one which is that Jesus and his earliest followers were deeply concerned with real, earthly, human needs, right? Actual bellies fed, actual illnesses healed. And as Jesus' followers, he invites us to care deeply about the same things. At the beginning of my message, I named this anxiety that I feel every time that I turn on the news, every time that I listen to a deep dive podcast about mass incarceration or the price gouging of life-saving medications, every time that I drive by a homeless person in Chandler, or every time that I learn about how, how many children and families depend on their kids' free and reduced school lunches, right? Because the reality, and this is true, is that for a lot of those kids, that's the only meal they're meals they're gonna eat that day. When I think about those things, it can feel really, really overwhelming. But why, why does it need to feel overwhelming? I believe it's overwhelming because we lack vision. And I'm included in this. This isn't like, this is all of us, right? We have trouble seeing the world the way that God sees it. In the back of our minds, I really think that a lot of us believe that the kingdoms of man really will have the final say. That the rich, the full, and the laughing really are the ones who are blessed. There's this comedian, I love this quote, I'm sure some of us have heard it. He says, I know they say that money can't buy happiness, but have you ever seen a sad person on a jet ski? <laughs> I think, and I'll be the first to raise my hand, I think a lot of us believe that kind of wisdom. But when we believe that the kingdoms of man really will have the final word, that it really does have to be this way, what is our response? Our response is overwhelm, it's anxiety, it's paralysis. We do nothing. 
I really don't believe that the solution is to stop listening, to close our eyes, to stop reading, to just, to just not care about stuff, right? Instead, I really believe that it's to keep watching, keep listening, but to do it with a new vision, with new imagination, and a commitment to action. The early church did not end all oppression. But what they did do is they took tangible steps to make a real difference in real people's lives. And I believe that we, as God's family, as the body of Christ, are invited to do that together today as well. Because when we believe it doesn't have to be this way, we are free to act accordingly. Because we believe, just as King heard at his kitchen table, that God will be with us. Worship team, could you come up? So how do we act and live out of this new way of seeing and out of this new imagination? I have three suggestions. I'm going to use the three words that I've been using. See, imagine, and act. So the first is see, right? Keep reading the news. Keep listening to podcasts. Uh, ask your friend. Ask, ask your coworkers how they're doing. Not just like the, the stock answer, but no, how are you really doing? Notice what's going on in your neighborhood. Is, is there that one lawn that's just always overgrown? That could be a sign of an annoying neighbor, or it could be a sign of disability or depression. Learn about your kids' teachers. Are, are they single parents? Can they afford groceries for their families? Talk to the folks at work who work in, in sanitation. What's their life like? The people of God need open eyes to take in our world exactly as it is. Jesus was never unclear about how broken his world was, and we can't be either. Right, today, in our day, oppression looks like a single mom who has to work three jobs just to barely provide for her kids, and yet still doesn't have access to health care, and so she's always one emergency room visit away from financial collapse and losing her children. Domination looks like human trafficking or modern slavery. By the way, Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona, is the national capital for human trafficking. It looks like that, but it also looks like black and Latino kids getting suspended for missing class at way, way higher rates than white kids. And hierarchy looks like all of the pay gaps, the gender pay gap, the racial pay gap, all of that, of course. But it also looks like, and hear this, it looks like the fact that there are eight men in the world, there are eight men who hold the same amount of wealth as 3.6 billion of the poorest people. Eight people hold the same amount of wealth as half the world's population. So we see, we open our eyes, we take in the realities, and no matter how hard they are, no matter how overwhelming it can feel. But number two, we take a turn, right? We imagine. We ask God for fresh imagination. So when you read the news, when you listen to a friend, when you see the overgrown lawn, ask God to give you fresh imagination. How would God invite you to pray in light of that situation? How does God see your friend's situation in a way that might be different than how you see it? What's an alternative way to think about the, way, the thing that you're seeing in light of the kingdom of God and those realities? It's actually the classic, uh, what would Jesus do if Jesus saw the thing that you were seeing? Imagine, 
what could be different. And then three is act alongside the Holy Spirit. So once God has given us fresh insight, fresh vision, fresh imagination, ask God, what is something tangible that he would invite us into to act in that space? And then, do it. Right, one way I like to think about this step is to ask ourselves, like, what resources do I have? Is it an education, um, finances, do I have handiwork skills? What, what resources do I have? And then where do I have influence? Is it my coworkers, my yoga class, my Hope small group, my classroom? Where do I have resources and where do I have influence to make even a small difference in tangibly bringing the kingdom of God to the people and places around me. What can that look like? It can mean walking over to the apartment complex across the street from me that houses a lot of refugee kids and offering them to practice their English skills. It can mean offering to cut the neighbor's lawn once a month or just paying landscapers to do it if you have the money for that. It can mean buying grocery store gift cards and giving them out to your kids' teachers or to the homeless guy in the corner. It can mean volunteering to hold babies in the hospital. That's a real job, apparently, that volunteers can do. <laughs> if you like babies, you can go hold babies in a hospital. Or if you're not into human babies, you can go uh, volunteer at your local animal shelter. They need holding, too, apparently. It can mean attending protests and demonstrations to advocate on the behalf of the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed here in our own communities. And yes, they do exist in our own communities. It can mean any of those things, but guess what? Hope actually has a lot of opportunities to act together in our local communities. So you can join one of those opportunities, right? There's the one mission trip where we build houses in Puerto Peñasco. There's the partnership with the Naomi House um, on, on the Navajo Nation. There's the Reminisce ministry that serves within local care homes. I know I'm going to miss things, but there are so many ways that the family of hope acts together to bring God's kingdom to earth. And one quick note while we're on the, the act piece is that you actually don't need God's permission to act in ways that promote justice, freedom, equity, love, peace, joy, all, all those kingdom of God type things. Right? So I do encourage you to pray and to ask, but the absence of specific instructions is not an invitation to just do nothing. King did receive, Dr. King, right? He received fresh vision from God, but I don't think that he had to like ask God for permission every time there was a new opportunity in the march toward justice for black Americans. I imagine that he probably relied on his mind, his ability to think strategically. He relied on his community of friends, people that he trusted. He used everything inside his toolbox to bring kingdom realities to earth. And we can do the same. So one more thing as we close, and I really want, I think there's some of us in the room that really do need to hear this. Um, at Hope, we aren't perfect, but we really do believe in that, that kingdom vision in Acts 2, right, of mutually supporting one another, mutually depending on one another. And so we have this thing where we try to live that out, and it's called the Benevolence Fund. We take up donations for that on the first Sunday of each month, and so thank you if you have given to the Benevolence Fund, but what, what is it? Well, it's, it's for you our Hope family, whenever you have a tangible need that you have no idea how it's going to get met, right? Your AC goes out and you don't have the money. You're behind on the bills and you can't afford groceries. Car repairs, clothing, school supplies for kiddos, 
any of those things, please, please, if you have needs, there is no shame in asking your Hope family for help. So maybe your action step is to just acknowledge that you have need and to ask for help and support because we as the people of God, as the family of hope, would love to support you in that. If that is your action step, um, you can actually just send an email to info at hopecov.com and just include benevolence funds somewhere in the subject. And I know that Brittany and the benevolence team would be floored. They'd be so excited to meet some tangible needs within our hope family. See? Imagine, act. It doesn't have to be this way. The kingdom of God will have the final say over all injustice and over all kingdoms of man. And we are invited as God's people, as the hands and feet of Christ, to make it so. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that your kingdom is a place in which there is no hunger, there is no poverty, there is no weeping. Jesus, I know that I get so overwhelmed, so anxious, so focused on my own uh, small life that it's hard to look up and to just see the world around me, to really see the people around me and the needs that might be there, the really practical needs, to see the injustices that exist all around us, It's really tiring sometimes to open the news and read again. And yet, God, I believe that you are inviting us as the people of God to be the hands and feet of Christ, bringing the kingdom of God into this world. So would you help us to open our eyes, to allow you to speak to us, to invite us into new kingdom realities and to act and live in ways that bring these realities into being. We love you, Jesus, and we just surrender ourselves to you again, even as we um, close in worship together. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.